Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. In today's episode, I speak with John Young, Director at BVA BDRC, an award-winning international consumer insight consultancy. We discuss their exciting new research around pre-booking and what the drawbacks to this are in the eyes of the visitor. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify and all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. John, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. It's really lovely to see you again. Yeah, you too. And um, yeah, I've been listening for, for quite a while now. So it's it's an honour to actually to be on here as well. I think it's it's got a great role to play for the industry so thank you as well for doing it oh john thank you that's (laughs) super kind of you right don't be too nice to me yet because you know that we're going to go into our icebreaker questions yeah (laughs) i'm a bit worried about (laughs) don't be worried i think i've been i've been quite kind to you john so i want to know what would you rather give up your smartphone or your computer i would say my smartphone definitely because I'm, I'm always trying to spend less time on it. And I think that would be a great way of doing that. Um, I have actually read stories of people who've done it, but they've never sort of followed it through. But yes, yeah, so definitely the smartphone. What What do you do to try and reduce your screen time? Do you, do you like lock it in a drawer in the evenings? Or I have, I've, I've put it into a separate room. Um, I've tried that. Um, what else have I done? You can set your settings so it's grayscale. And apparently that sort of deactivates oh. the some of the the well, set deactivates the colors in 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 some of your um your apps which makes them less appealing um i've actually tried quite a lot um <laughs> and miserably failed um i've read loads of books about it you know about that sort of thing but i'm still sort of scrolling through it 10 at night and it's next to my my bed at night as well so i failed a bit so if you could take it away from me I'm sure my wife would say thank you as well. You could do that. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know if I can help you with that because I'm the world's <laughs> worst. It's difficult, isn't it? Because I think um, I like to engage with people. I like, like we, we speak on Twitter every now and again. And I think yeah. that the, the Twitter platform and LinkedIn for me. Yeah. And actually that is something I've done. So I don't, I can't access Twitter on my phone now. It's just through my laptop. So that has helped. But you end up just wheeling that out then at nine yeah. at night. <laughs> I'll just get my laptop out and check. check yeah, Twitter. check something. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Next one. Um, what was your least favorite food as a child? And do you still hate it or do you love it now? Um, mushrooms. I remember quite clearly when I was about five years old, my dad tried to feed me a mushroom. I think he thought that this would be a good way to get me to like them. And I, I hated them. And he tries to put it, he actually physically put it in my mouth and I bit his finger. <laughs> and he didn't talk to me for a while. He had a few stern words. I, I remember it really clearly. And my wife, she's, she's Polish and they love going uh, mushroom picking. Uh, whenever we're in Poland, it's, it's like a, quite a regular pastime. So they go into the woods and they go mushroom picking and they really, really try to get me to like them. But I think I read that if you eat something five times, then... You will you will like it, so maybe I just need to do that. But okay. I still hate it. So you still hate them. You're yeah, still a, yeah. Still a mushroom hater. I think that's a yeah. thing. That's that's quite common, isn't it? Mushrooms are a bit of a. I think so. They're a bit marmite for people, aren't they? Yeah, I like marmite, but um, yeah, mushrooms no, unfortunately. But it's it's an ambition. To, to like, like to like yeah. mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. That's what lockdown does. You can have have these weird ambitions. 
love that. It's such a strange goal, John. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm full of them. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's go to the unpopular opinion. So tell me something that you believe to be true that, that hardly anybody agrees with you on. So I struggled with this. I've I, I sort of oscillated between going really superficial to really deep. So I've ended up with something a little bit superficial. But so my unpopular opinion is that I really don't enjoy Bake Off or Strictly just not for me and I've tried really hard to like both but I just can't get excited about people baking on tv or dancing and I like doing both but and I know what a is it a massa double or something like that the dance and the soggy bottom and all that I can I can hold a conversation it's almost like people who don't like football but they can kind of hold that kitchen conversation right. you've got the cultural reference down but yeah absolutely you're not down with the shows but it's a no unfortunately <laughs> I'm kind of I'm kind of feeling you on this one. John, yeah. Because I, if it's on, like if Bake Off's on, I'd watch it. But I'm not a massive baker. So I don't have a huge kind of interest in it. And also, I thought I would love Strictly. I used to tap dance when I was a kid. Oh, right. Quite, okay. quite the same. But I was really big into tap dancing. And I thought I'd love it. I just don't love it. I feel like we're taking one for the team there, John, because I've I've agreed with you on this, and I think we're going to get some we're going to get some Twitter backlash. Some pushback, we? yeah. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. <laughs> well, thank you for that, John. No so, John, you are director at the BVA BDRC. Yes. It's also a name that I have gotten wrong about yeah. four billion times on this podcast. So I know it's something a needs to be done about this. But tell us a little bit about what you do. So with the name, I think that was, um, it was the brainchild of the founders about 25, maybe 30 years ago now. And they just came up with the name Business Development Research Consultants. And there was just two of them and it got shortened. And now here we are, there's about a hundred of us and (laughs) we're stuck with it, but we got bought by BVA, which didn't help. So we're now, that's where that comes from. It wasn't some kind of genius branding idea, Um, but um, yeah, so as a company, um, we're sort of, we've got an international presence, so we've got offices around the world. But we are sort of split up into divisions. So we've got two divisions in our London office. So we've got this sort of commercial team, and that they work with the banks and uh, media, um, so ITV, Channel Four, etc. And then we've got our division, which we call On the Move. Um, and my, the team I work in, we sort of specialise with attractions and tourist boards. So. I've been there 11 years now and throughout that time I've worked pretty much exclusively with visitor attractions and tourist boards so the likes of Visit Britain, Visit Wales, Visit Scotland and a few overseas as well. So we do market research and we do the whole spectrum really so it can be anything from focus groups um, to one-on-one depth interviews to online surveys and we do audience segmentations membership work pricing pretty much anything that involves you know trying to understand what the public think and yeah we work with um loads and loads of brilliant attractions it's a wonderful sector to work in as i'm sure you know kelly um so we work with the little museums and um some of the large nationals as well we run the alva benchmarking survey so this is a survey that is conducted a few times a year um, amongst visitors to around 80 different attractions across the UK. And we then sort of benchmark um, each attraction against the others um, just to understand the visitor experience, which marketing they've used, their profile, and, if, and then lo- a load of other things as well. So it's quite broad, 
but yeah it means we work with lots of uh, lots of great organizations it's incredibly useful as well the, the yeah. data that you provide and i think one of the one of the ways that we met was through the visitor experience forum that's um, right we, we both spoke on one of their webinars didn't we yeah and um i had become aware of of what you guys do at the BVA, BDRC, because of the consumer sentiment tracker that you've been doing all the way through lockdown, which was something you were, it was something that you did off your own back. And well, tell us a little bit about it because it was incredibly useful for for us as as kind of suppliers to the industry, but it must've been a fantastic resource for for the sector itself. Yeah, it was was really great. Um, So it was actually the brainchild of my colleague, Thomas Folke, I'll give him a name check there, because uh, it was his idea back in, I think, late March. And obviously, a lot of our work got cancelled. We work with a lot of hotels as well. So that's in the other team in our division. And uh, so he just felt, you know, it'd be good to, to, to have some sort of tracker. And then we also sort of discussed it and it grew from there. And, you know, there's, a, a, I guess, a dual motivation, just like any sort of ma- uh, content marketing. Um, it, it, it did obviously paint us in a good light it was a good way to sort of stay in contact with organizations uh that we worked with but also to make new contacts and i think i spoke on about 10 different webinars um (laughs) in the first two months and one of which i met you yourself but it was also really good for us to sort of to help out as well and most of us in our team we are regular attractions visitors ourselves and we've sort of built up relationships with the people we work with as well so it was nice to be able to provide something for free. Um, And um, we did that for 23 consecutive weeks. So every week we produced a new report. I kept some of my colleagues busy as well, because I think (laughs) in the end it was about 70 pages, which is a bit ridiculous by the end of it. But, you know, there was, it was full of sort of data to understand how people felt, whether they were open to, you know, going out in public and, um, who was and who wasn't and loads and loads of other things and so we stopped that in August but we've now gone down to um, conducting the research on a fortnightly basis and producing a monthly report and so there should be one actually landing around about now oh fabulous um, so yeah it's um, yeah it, it's, it's been a good experience and when we did stop originally we had a we had a load of lovely emails from from lots of different attractions saying how useful it had been so yeah it was worthwhile I think that is that's something that's really come across from from great people in the sector throughout you know this this situation that we've been in is that things that have like you, you described it I mean ultimately it's a marketing piece it was a content marketing piece but it was helpful and yeah. that's what's been really, really important is that anything that people were, were were pushing out was helpful and useful to the sector. And it was so invaluable, you know, to be able to see this snapshot of how people were feeling. And even for us, you know, we were able to kind of build our own content pieces on your content piece because yeah. we were like, oh, wow, people have really changed their opinion on how they feel about this thing. Now, that's something that affects what we do. Now, we can talk about it. And so, yeah, thank you for doing it, because I just think it was it was such a great and useful piece of data to produce. Yeah, thank you. And I think I'm not sure if other sectors would have responded um, so well to it, I think, because one thing that's really striking about the attraction sector is just how much everybody works together. Yeah. And more often than not, they can they are actually technically competitors, but they don't see it that way. They think, you know, that, that as the sum of the, of the parts is, is greater than the individual. And, you know, we had, we've, yeah, we've had um, 
Uh, you see that with Alva, and I think you know we've had lots of organisations who we may sort of compete with, but, um, also promoting this as well. So, yeah, it's, it was great. Brilliant, yeah. And sector communication is something that we've we've been talking about all the way through this. And yeah, long, long may it continue. Absolutely. So this brings us to a very recent and new piece of data that you have been working on, and I'm really excited because. I have a little copy of it here and I feel like there's not many people that have got this. So I feel quite special. Um, Now, this is about a topic that has, we have been talking about this probably since March, um, but it is still a hot topic and it's on everyone's minds and it's pre-booking. Yeah. Now, there is a huge debate at the moment around the benefits of pre-booking versus the more kind of traditional walk-up approach that, that attractions have taken. And you've carried out a new piece of research, which is specifically around this. Just, just give us an overview of what, of what you've done, of what you've carried out. Yeah, so I've, actually listening to your podcast and some of the various conversations that um, have um, that we've sort of been um, witnessed on on on, on various webinars, um, we felt that there was a lot of debate and a, a lot of opinion that that maybe is worth putting some numbers against some of these opinions, um, just to understand you know um, what was an issue and what wasn't. So we added, I think, around a dozen questions to our fortnightly tracker that we've just spoken about amongst a nationally representative sample of the UK population. And we just tried to understand what proportion of these people had pre-booked, what proportion had booked but not shown up. What were the reasons for this? Were they understandable? You know, what proportion had actually booked and, and didn't fancy a visit but actually visited because they booked? And then we've also looked at um, whether people are put off by pre-booking generally whether people would think it's a good or a bad thing to go to 100% pre-booking after COVID and what are the reasons that people like it and the, and the reasons people don't like it. So I guess that's it in a nutshell. And we've also looked at some of the different audiences and, and dug into some of our other data as well, just to understand some of the other issues that people are talking about, such as spontaneous visits. Yeah. So that's it in a nutshell. Excellent. Let's dive into this thing because it's really interesting. And I have to say... Um, I, I am a I'm a huge advocate for pre-booking and I know again I've said this over and over and over on these on these podcast interviews and it's quite surprising um I think I put a post out on LinkedIn a little while ago asking people what their experiences of it are and whether they think it's a good thing whether they're uncomfortable with it and the responses I got were really surprising yeah I think potentially because I'm very much a planner and I'm very comfortable to book in advance about what I'm going to do but obviously there's a percentage of people that are more spontaneous and yeah. they would prefer to just decide what they're going to do on the day and pre-booking doesn't work for them at all. And, and it's really fascinating, the data that's come out. So obviously from an attractions perspective, we, we know what the benefits to the attractions are. You know, we know that pre-booking, it, it, it allows them to know how many people are coming. It's great from an operational perspective. You know, they know how, man, how, many, how much of their team they need in they can even out that kind of pattern of, you know, visitor arrivals throughout the day. And we have seen an increase in donations and gift aid contributions as well via pre-booking. But let's start with what the visitors see mm-hmm. as a benefit. How supportive are visitors of pre-booking? So I think 
it's quite sort of striking that the majority of your sort of market, so these are people who visit attractions, seven in 10 do think it's, it's a good thing. So um, 70% stated that they would still go ahead and visit if they found out that the place they had wanted to visit um, required pre-booking. So that is a strong majority, you know, 70%. We also asked the question in a slightly different way, you know, if post-COVID attractions went to 100% pre-booking, would you see this as a good or a bad thing? And 75% stated either a good thing or it wouldn't make any difference to them. So these are strong majorities who are probably in your camp, Kelly, who are sort of the, the planners and the organisers, and they're fine with this. Interesting. But that's not all of them, is it? Okay, Absolutely. so what do they, which we'll get to in a little while. <laughs> so, and what do they see the kind of the main benefits of pre-booking as? The main benefit was to be able to plan their time with more certainty. So that was around um, three in five, so 57% of visitors to indoor attractions, slightly lower for gardens. And just, just to make the point that we we tested pre-booking at indoor attractions. So looking at museums, art galleries, historic houses, and also gardens and country parks, because clearly the weather has a big impact too. Sure. Um, and we also tested at restaurants just to kind of get a feel for that sort of benchmark where okay. pre-booking has been in place for quite a long time. So yeah, the main reason was just the ability to plan in advance. Um, the second most popular reason was that there's less queuing when we get there. So over half stated that people were allowed to give more than one reason. And then it drops a little bit to around three in 10 stating that places just tend to be less busy. One in four saying we can do some research ahead of the visit. And I think personally, I think that's quite an important reason, even though we're only one in four of giving it. I think for me, one of the benefits of pre-booking to the attraction is they can have this conversation with the visitor in advance of the visit and you can maybe raise awareness of parts of the attraction that you, you wouldn't necessarily see um, and you know we've year after year in research we've done with attractions we speak to big chunks of visitors who say they went for maybe an exhibition but they had no idea that half of the other elements of a site were there they didn't know that there was an original version of this document at the back and they loved would have loved to have seen it so I think being able to have that conversation is really important. But for the visitor, that's one in four. And then one in five stating there's there are fewer debates about what to do on the day. So I, I can imagine families, certainly. <laughs> um, you know, if, you, if it's not spontaneous and it's in the diary a week in advance, then, you know, you don't have to have that, that debate and, you know, any sort of uh, toys thrown out of uh, prams. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's just it's decided in advance. This is what we're yeah. doing on Saturday, team. So Absolutely. let's plan for it rather than on the day, maybe having to have multiple conversations with with different people in your in your family group about you know what does everybody want to do. The decision's already been made. We're doing this. Absolutely, yeah. So what about drawbacks? Let's let's dive into those because I find these really interesting. So what are the drawbacks in in the eyes of the visitor? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned earlier, three in 10 felt it was actually, you know, they probably think twice and not visit and one in four saying it's a bad thing post COVID. And the number one reason that people don't like to book ahead was that they just don't like to commit to things too early. They prefer to be spontaneous. And that was 67% of those who thought it was a um, who, who thought it was a bad thing. Mm. Um, to go to, to 100% pre-booking. So that's quite a big chunk of people who are quite spontaneous in their behaviour. Um, and we had some really, I thought, some quite 
interesting quotes alongside that. So we asked people to just to write out why do you think is a bad thing? Um, I'll just read a few of those out. Um, I like to be able to make spontaneous decisions in my life. I don't like to be tied to a time um, because I often visit places when I'm passing by. And we've noticed in our research that, you know, if, if it's a city centre attraction, particularly if it's free, you will often have up to, you know, one in five of your visitors actually deciding to visit when passing. And, you know, I, I do this quite often myself. Where our office is in Hoban in central London. So you would often go for a walk, um, maybe at lunchtime or after work. And I, I might sometimes walk past the British Museum and I think, actually, I might just pop in or, you know, any number of others in the area. And when I was working in Birmingham, there's Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, some similar sort of thing. You can easily yeah. just pop in. And there's a lot of people for whom um, attractions are just nice places to be. And it's just they might choose it over a cafe or over a park. Yeah. Um, just because it's a nice place to spend some time. So that was quite interesting. The next couple I thought were also quite interesting. So one person said if you plan on visiting several places in a day, that means a lot of booking and you have to be hyper organized. Which again, with a family, that's difficult, right? It's yeah. hard enough, you know, to get people out of the house on time to get to the first attraction at the time that you've booked. But then you're constantly clock watching because you think we've got to get to here at this point as well. And, and things might happen that 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 way, late, way lead you. Paul had actually said he had his own personal experience of going to London during half term and with his son. And then maybe they had a few museums planned and it was actually quite hard sticking to time. And yeah, yeah so I think that's actually one that I, I hadn't thought of beforehand because you kind of think in the silo, don't you, right, I'm pre-booking one place. But the reality is people try to squeeze loads in, especially if they're visiting central London or a, or a big city. Yeah, completely. And and I, and, I, and from my my personal view, I had kind of not considered how close people might be to attractions and how easy it is just to nip in. You know, you described where your office is in Holborn. Yeah. We're, out, we're outside of London. So for me, I'm always kind of making a trip somewhere to go to something. So I've, yeah. got, to, I've got to get into London first. So for me, I would... I'm kind of always doing that plan ahead. There isn't really those opportunities to be spontaneous where I live. So I don't think about being in that, in that zone. Absolutely. And, and I think, um, I mean, I know London, I'm from South Wales, but I probably know London in that sense better than anywhere in the UK, but maybe Edinburgh, you know, from when I've been there, it's quite similar. But if you imagine, you know, I've, I've been to, to South Kensington, you know, umpteen times and often take family there and, I'm thinking to the last time my sister came up, we went to um, the Natural History Museum, as you do. And then we finished and we had a bit more time. So we thought, actually, should we just pop in the Science Museum? Um, so we went there and I think we even went to the V&A afterwards just because we'd, we were enjoying ourselves so much. But we hadn't planned the other two. It was just Natural right. History Museum. So I think certainly when they're quite close to each other, that that's that's quite um, something to bear in mind, too. What else was there? Um Another quite interesting couple of quotes around the spontaneity point. Someone said, when it's about entertainment, it's just stupid to plan your mood. <laughs> Which, <laughs> okay, yeah. I quite I like that. that. I get I, that. Um, and this sort of, I, I, I spoke um, about three months ago, I spoke to somebody, um, I was doing some work for a museum in, in central London, and I was trying to understand their sort of habits before lockdown, before COVID and after lockdown. And the lady I spoke to was an artist um, and we did this Zoom chat and 
you could see in the background there were some wonderful pieces of art and it was you know she's clearly an incredibly creative person and she said that she before covid she was going to attractions maybe two three times a week if not more and she just liked being in the national gallery or the national portrait gallery or all these other places um but after lockdown um, restrictions were lifted, she said she'd been maybe twice in a month, if that. And she had a few reasons, but the main one for her was pre-booking. Wow. And she said, I'm such a spontaneous person. I really hate planning. And she even said that when you've got something planned, say at two o'clock, then you spend most of the morning kind of thinking about that. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, I thought I could actually imagine myself, you know, there's a little anxiety. Am I doing everything to time? And and so there's definitely that type of person and they definitely exist and they're a minority, but, you know, they're a fairly chunky minority. And then there's the not organized people. So it's, you know, someone said it would put me off because I hate organizing. I, I like to float around and browse. Um, the commitment can be a serious burden and other events may occur. So maybe a bit extreme, but I think, you know, these people clearly exist and I think they're quite valid reasons. Uh, yeah, completely valid. And this is really difficult, isn't it? Because um, as an attraction, you need to cater for all of these different types of people yeah. and, and how everybody needs and wants that the flexibility to be able to book or or not book. Uh, gosh, it's, it's really it's a really difficult task that people... It really working. is. And I think, I mean, a couple of people gave the weather as well, which is obviously more applicable for some than others. I think one thing that maybe is missed in the debate, and maybe I've just not heard enough debates in it, but is that a lot of visits to attractions aren't necessarily those tick box, memorable moment, life-changing experiences. I mean, if you're going to Warner Brothers or maybe a Merlin attraction or Natural History Museum for the first time, then obviously it is, you know, it's these are moments you'll never forget. But a lot of attraction visits are actually really casual visits. Um, we call them the social mindset segment, and they tend to make up ar- around one in five people who, who visit, um, typically visit attractions. And these are people who just go there to be in a nice environment and to maybe chat with a friend or to have a coffee or to um, just to be around like-minded people. Mm. And I guess that can sometimes get missed off. It's not necessarily that big, you know, standout tick experience every yeah. time. Yeah, like you, the example that you gave of that of the artist. Yeah, I'm sure she finds that those environments quite inspiring for her work and for what she does, you know, and, and who she is as a person. To be, to have to plan that is almost like planning your inspiration. It's not yeah. quite. It's not quite right, is it? You know, you 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 take yourself off off for a walk somewhere random to be inspired and. I think having to to kind of go, okay, well, at two o'clock, I'm going to go to the tape for my inspiration for the day. It's not quite, doesn't quite sit well with her, does it? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it it is a minority, but yeah, yeah, it feels quite valid. Are there any differences by visitor party type? So, you know, families, retirees, et cetera. Yeah, so it was quite interesting when we asked this question. And when we looked at the the life stage, so we looked at pre-nesters, um, there's under 35s without children in household, older independents, so 35 and over without children in household, then families and then retirees. So we look at those four different life stages as opposed to age group. Um, and families were a little bit higher in terms of being resistant. I think it's, it is worth noting that they were, a, they were a little bit higher. It was about seven percentage points. It's not a huge amount, but the vast majority were still happy with it. 
And I think my take, having thought about this quite quite a bit now, is that the differences aren't really um, based on life stage or party size per se. There are some, and I can understand why families would be resistant. There are more moving parts with a family, you know, mm-hmm. literally, um, and more things that can go wrong in the day. Whereas, you know, if my, myself and my partner, we, we've just got ourselves to worry about. So I, I can see why that would be a barrier. But for me, the biggest distinction is in attitudes. And we, um, as I mentioned earlier, we do quite a lot of audience segmentations and we don't tend to do them on demographics anymore. So we don't do it on gender or age mm-hmm. um, or any, any other demographic. Um, we do it on people's attitudes and that's their attitudes to life or it could be to how they do their leisure, leisure behaviour or anything else. And, and that's what's come across here, I think, is that the, the key distinctions are attitudes to pre-booking and how organised you are and how spontaneous you are and how much you like planning and how much you don't. And that does transcend all life stages. Um, So you do, certainly there's an indication that families are a bit more resistant, but it's not as big as the the sort of differences in terms of attitudes. One other thing we noticed though, is that even though families were a bit more resistant, they were actually more likely to go ahead. So it's almost as if they were um, gritting their teeth and, and, <laughs> and, and visiting. And, and again, that, felt, that did make sense because I guess, you know, when you're a family, you, you really need to fill your, your spare time and to get out and do things. So yeah. whereas maybe a, an individual on their own or a couple, there's less pressure to do that. Yeah, you've got the challenge again of keeping children and, you know, younger members of your family occupied. So that's, that's that. Look, we've got to do something, whether we like this or not. We've got to get them out of the house. We've got to, you know, they've been stuck in these four walls. Everyone's going crazy. We've got to go out and do something kind of attitude. Yeah. So I, my, my sort of take from this whole bit section is that not to get too caught up on the, light, on the, on the party type and just to think about these different attitudes. Uh, yeah, because that, that feels to be the, the big dividing point. Okay. And audiences that are not picked up by the research so this is again I think this was really interesting to me because I hadn't thought about some of these things as actually being a challenge for people which is it's not on to be honest they should I should have been more aware of them but tell us about the audiences that have not been picked up by the research and 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 how it would affect them yeah so I think the international audiences um so um we this was amongst a, a UK sample so and I, I I can visualize here my my wife's parents who are Polish and they don't speak any English and coming over here as they have done a few times and just setting them free into London and see what they get up to and you know they they often do visit attractions but they'll walk up and they'll have that conversation mm-hmm. and there's less room for error but to ask them to go on a website you know they, they don't really they don't book their National Express from Stansted um you know they get my wife to do that because they they know that they can do something wrong and and those are they're a great example in my mind that there's likely to be a barrier for international visitors particularly those who don't speak English and there's lots of those who come to to London and the rest of the UK so that's definitely a barrier I think and unless you can cover all the bases um with language then I think that will be I, I know that Google have an inbuilt translation function but again, you know, you have to be quite IT savvy to, to, to know that. Um, so I think that's definitely one audience. The older retirees, so 
we conduct our surveys amongst um, on a on a panel. So these are people who've signed up to do the surveys online. So we're naturally missing out that small proportion of older um, citizens who aren't that IT savvy. Yeah. So I guess my my nan would have fallen into that category. Um, she always liked to, to phone ahead, for example. So there is a danger that you kind of sort of, um, they lose out a little bit. And I think, you know, that obviously there's always the option to phone and they, they do that. Um, but perhaps, you know, that is just one extra barrier then, uh, one extra step when yeah. maybe a year before they would have just turned up. So that audience, I think, is quite an important one still, although they are becoming more IT savvy. Um, I think a lot of data shows that. See um, people's grands on Facebook now to just uh, make that point. <laughs> That's a different place to 10 years ago, for sure. Um, and I think the third big, big audience is the low income audiences. And so we, we've, we've been doing some work for a network of libraries uh, in the UK. And um, I think it was about two months ago that we had a, a big meeting with representatives of these different libraries around the UK. And um, we decided to switch our research to online again because of COVID. We used to have paper-based surveys that we'd hand out in each library. Um, and we felt it was a great idea, maybe for the same reasons as the pre-booking, you know, it was much more efficient, mm-hmm. you know, you get much better data, more reliable, blah, blah, blah. And about halfway through, someone from a Glasgow museum put their hand up and said, um, you know, this is great, but can we have paper surveys as well? He said that it was around about 30% of his catchment area um, didn't have access to the internet. Right. And I've, I was really surprised by that. It's a huge amount. It is. You don't expect numbers like that. Um, but I know there is quite high sort of deprivation traditionally in that area that the library, where the library is. So he said it's absolutely essential that, you know, we have paper surveys and there was an, another way of doing this as well. And, obviously that made me think about pre-booking online too and it's it's been a, a challenge for certainly the museum sector and cultural attractions to reach out to all of their audiences and actually in Glasgow they've done an, a really amazing job um, the likes of Kelvin Grove for example but this audience is quite large and it, I guess it needs to be thought about too so yeah that's quite a big barrier as well I think. Yeah absolutely and it's it's a focus for cultural organisations to be to raise their awareness in audiences that are not necessarily their natural audiences or people that are less aware of them and they would you know those people would fit would fit into those into that category so it's understanding all the different ways that you need to be able to help your people help people visit you know help them understand what you do and and be able to book Absolutely. I think certain funding like HLF funding, you know, is dependent on on attractions actually doing that as well. So they kind of need to be seen to be to, to reach out in, every, in all, all these different ways. Gosh, so what are the conclusions from this, John? <laughs> because um, it, there's not a one answer fits all, is there? This is going to be a hybrid, some kind of hybrid model. There really isn't. And I think um, I think one thing I didn't mention is the no-shows as well. I, I don't know if uh, you wanted to mention that, but yes. I think there's a, there's a sort of a big worry as well that, you know, in our survey around 10% of people, I think 15%, sorry, um, said that they booked and hadn't shown up. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's another, I guess, barrier as well. Um, although we also found that a similar proportion had shown up because they booked. <laughs> um, so... 
I think that maybe balances out. So I think in terms of our conclusions, that was quite an important point for me because there was a lot of people not showing up just because they were never committed in the first place. Um, so I think about seven in 10 of those people said, actually, it was always 50-50. I just booked it. So I think there is a, a need to maybe make that more taboo. There's a challenge there around uh, annual passes as well, isn't there? So people, that if you if you have an annual pass for an organized uh, for you know for a, an attraction, and you you have to pre-book as well to use that annual pass, you book it, but you might not go. But that can't then be resold. So the attraction, in a way, kind of loses out because they can't. There's no one else that they can put through the door. Yeah, it is a real challenge. And I think I was really struck by the fact that the majority of people who don't turn up just said they, they had more than one option that day and they didn't really get the gravity of it. And I mentioned that we tested restaurants as well. Mm. And what was really striking was that the proportion of no-shows was a lot lower and people who don't turn up to restaurants were more likely to give sort of understandable reasons, like they were ill on the day. or so. And I think not turning up to a restaurant is um, a little bit more taboo um you can kind of visualize in your head that empty table that you're leaving there and so I think the more that attractions can create that sense of taboo without sort of shaming anyone the better and maybe that will happen less and less and I think they are doing that um but you said the annual pass point is quite important so I think when people have parted with a lot of money for their pre-booking they're less likely to do it so yeah I think one of the conclusions is if we can reduce that a little bit as well that that will help but in terms of overall conclusions I think I mean, I'm, I'm like yourself. I'm, I'm massively in favour of pre-booking. I think it's brilliant at so many different levels. And I think you listed those right at the start. It's great for the attraction and it can really improve the visitor experience. You know, it can Absolutely. curate. And also you can gain loyalty and a long term and, and have that conversation um, either side. So I, I'm, I'm really um, behind it. Um, I think, you know, it really does suggest, though, that there's a need for some sort of hybrid um where there is a, a walk-up option possible because as we've discussed at length there, this one in five of, of your visitors you know they may be spontaneous visitors depending on where you're situated obviously it, it it does matter where you are and how much you charge you know if you are the british library then there's loads of people coming out of king's cross and just mm. popping in but if you're in uh, the middle of nowhere then you're less likely to have that so there's obvious differences and I guess people need to sort of work those through as well Um, but yeah I certainly think um, some sort of hybrid and I'm glad I don't have to sort of decide on how that works and (laughs) I I just get to give the data because it's clearly very challenging but there's a lot of operational brains out there I think that that can really uh, can, can work that through and maybe there's a bit of trial and error as well but I think the point I made earlier about just understanding it's more of an attitudinal barrier, I think, than yeah. anything else. And not to get too bogged down in the demographics of it all. And just to understand that some people hate planning. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not so good at it myself. So uh, I can kind of empathise. Yeah, and I guess just to be aware that there are other audiences out there who might really struggle. And I saw some figures today that um, from Visit Britain and their projections on inbound tourism and it's so low. Yeah, 16.9 million, wasn't it, yeah. for, for next year? Oh, well done. I think, <laughs> I I think, that, I think that's what I, what I read this morning. I'm yeah. looking at it myself, but it's, you know, it's so vastly down. It's really, it's really scary. 
It really is. And there's markets like the States who will take longer to catch up just because there's a big lag from booking to, to visiting. So we need to do all we can to get as many of our British um, based visitors in as possible. So I guess we just need to have all, all the options we can. So yeah, that, that's a, the key conclusion, I think, uh, really. And uh, yeah, like I said, I'll leave it to the the boffins in the attractions to, <laughs> to work out how to do it because I guess you don't want to have a situation where if you can turn up walk up anyway why would you pre-book it's difficult isn't it yeah I, balance. I think it's it is about balance I think um I mean a lot of attractions are just going to say no that's it we're going we're going to keep the pre-booking that's it. it it's it's almost tough but I think it depends on it's it's very location driven like you were saying it's interesting yeah. we've got we've actually got Jeff Spooner coming on the podcast in the new year from um, the Warner Brothers studio tour, the making of Harry Potter, uh, which obviously launched with pre-booking from opening day. So this will, it'll be really interesting for people to tune in and hear all of the positives from that. But Jeff is very, you know, pragmatic when he speaks about it because he does say a lot of those decisions are driven by location um, actually in terms of, of kind of parking and congestion in the area where they're located as well, it made sense to do that. And so there's so many factors you have to think about, and it is going to be down to the individual attractions to work out what's going to work best for them. It really is. And I think, um, you know, the likes of Warner Brothers, as I said earlier, they are life, you know, they're, they're, when you visit Warner Brothers, it is, you know, a, magic. A, a, amazing. I went yeah. a few years ago with my niece and we actually booked four months in advance and it was amazing. And, you know, everyone's had the same experience, I think. Um, so it is maybe different to um, the uh, Sir John Soane's in central London where, um, you know, you can visit more regularly perhaps. But I think actually one thing that Simon at um, Roman Baths mentioned was that their, their booking system is really flexible. Um, so they've had a really low proportion of no-shows. So you can cancel, Great. I think, up to the minute pretty much and so if I think the more flexibility the better and maybe that will help um, as well so yeah lots lots out there and I'm sure there'll be some great best practice well lots to think about for (laughs) 2021 Um, hopefully this podcast has given you a little insight into what visitors are thinking about about pre-booking um john i i mean i've been lucky enough to have my copy in advance where will people be able to find this research so that they can have a read of it themselves so hopefully by the time this is um this is published we'll have put it into a blog and maybe you know in a q a format um we'll see how it goes might put a few graphs in there um we, we love a graph love a graph feel a bit naked without a graph actually just talking <laughs> about this um so uh yeah we'll we'll put it on our website um follow me on linkedin or whatever and i'll be promoting it on there as well and Great. On twitter um, well, yeah. all of our listeners we will link to all of these things in the show notes so we'll, we'll link to john's linkedin profile we'll link to the bva bdrc website and their twitter profile so go ahead and follow them and then you will have access to this brilliant research john i always end the podcast by asking our guests to recommend a book uh something that they love or something that's helped shape their career in some way so have you got something to share with us today i do uh, i've got this book called how emotions are made great so i read this on jury service okay 
interesting jury service then. Yeah, well, when I, when I got to the jury service, I noticed that there were loads and loads of thousand-piece jigsaws, which gave me an idea that we wouldn't be doing a, a lot with our time. Um, I think I spent 90% of it just hanging around. Um, so luckily I had this book, which is written by a neurologist called Lisa Feldman Barrett, and it's the science of how emotions are sort of created. It's a hard read, and I don't think I'd have read it if I didn't have so much time on my hands. But it's really, really fascinating. And it kind of changed how I thought about the visitor experience. In a nutshell, it sort of talks about how you can only really feel emotions if you recognize the stimulus you're given and if you're not distracted in lots of ways. So when we test the visitor experience now, certainly in exhibitions, we'll just make sure um, we we sort of test how relatable exhibits and descriptions are, and um, whether there are any distractions in the area in in uh, in the in the ex- exhibition room, and lots of other things around that. So I, I do recommend it. It really changed how we thought about the visitor experience. I'm just looking at the footnotes are about 100 pages, so I'm not sure if anyone will want to win this, but it's, uh, it's really interesting. John, you're not really selling it for our <laughs> listeners, so I'm not going to lie. But listen, if, you, if you've listened to all of that and you'd still like to win that book, then if you head over to our Twitter account and, as ever, retweet this episode announcement with the words, I want John's books, then you will be in with a chance of winning a copy of it. John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, just, I, I would like to just thank you again for all of the work that, that you've been, been doing throughout lockdown because it has been invaluable for us and I know that it's been invaluable for many, many attractions up and down the UK. So thank you. Thank you. This is the last episode of 2020, which is crazy. I have had an absolute blast this year talking to the most interesting people. And I'm so grateful that all of you listeners have been tuning in week after week after week. So thank you. We are going to be back on the 6th of January with a very exciting episode. In fact, we've got loads of exciting episodes um, lined up for the start of the new year. As you heard earlier, we've got Jeff Spooner coming on from the making of Harry Potter, which I'm really excited about. I definitely fangirled a little bit on that podcast. Um, We have Holcomb Estates coming on to talk about their sustainability plans. And we have the brilliant National Football Museum who are coming on to talk about why your attraction should have a podcast. So stay tuned. We'll see you in the new year. But in the meantime, have an absolutely wonderful Christmas and festive break. Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.